What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 58 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk and sponsored by Sterile Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you on this Monday evening? I am work-free on this Monday oh, evening. Oh. So, um, of all the ways I could be on any given Monday evening, this is one of the very good ones um, that I have. Beautiful time, beautiful time. I, I also am, of course, work free, and it's just amazing, man. Like, I haven't, like, in, in real concept of things, I haven't really got that much done today, but just compared to what I would normally get done on a Monday, this is, like, the most productive day of my entire life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, obviously, we're working to half four, usually, on a Monday. Yeah, absolutely. It sort of changes your, changes the whole gravity of your day, doesn't it? Um uh, comparatively, apart from podcast stuff, I've done nothing, and that's also been fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. And you just never get that chance to just do nothing. Yeah, precisely. I'm going to spend at least the next three days doing a little bit of reading and catching up on some bits and bobs. Um, it's gonna be nice, like just have some time to myself. I had a bath today. When I, when I say that, that's one of the, that's one of the things that I did today. I was Mate, like, you know I what? can't imagine you. I can't imagine you being a bath guy. Um, not regularly. Um, believe it or not, I used to have baths every day because we didn't have a shower until I was like 13. Oh, it mate, never worked and we never replaced nah, it. Nah. And it was not pleasant because it's like a 20 minute fucking exercise. You can't can't rush a bath. No. Um, at all. No one runs a quick bath. That doesn't exist. It just you're just there, you just waiting for that finite amount of time. But today it was it was nice, like it was first day off, chilled out. You know, you know, it's called self-care, you know what I mean? I've got to hear it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it well. I'm glad to hear it's made you think it hasn't it didn't go so well that now you've gone back to a bath guy. Oh no, 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 no. Showers showers for the foreseeable. I think I have a bath maybe once every six months to a year. It's just like an occasional today feels like that sort of day. You know, might maybe I'll be the cynical one to the, the to the bathed one moving forward. I'm sorry, oh, but, I, I, I'm I sorry, know. but regular bath takers are not metal. It's it's shower. Unless you're in the band Bathory, <laughs> and then I think it's acceptable. <laughs> it's showers because showers are quicker, and we're all about them blast beats, bro. So yes, yes, we are. We ain't yes, about we them long taking baths. I tell you what, we are about Sam, mate. I am <laughs> loving. I am loving the MWA. I am. Yeah, it's, it's been a it's been a fantastic addition to my month. How um, what has been the biggest surprise? For you, the biggest pleasant surprise or the biggest disappointment? Well, for those who aren't aware, for those who aren't aware, the MWE is the Music Writers Experience where you take 30 records. Well, actually, it's meant to be a a record for each day of the month of February, but that would have left us on 28 albums and no fucking way was my OCD going to allow that. So I said to Sam, (laughs) we're going to have to do 30 because I can't do fucking 28. Um, So yeah, you listen to a new album that you've never heard before every day and then you write one tweet bear with it to sum up your feelings on that record we added our own little noise podcast twist on it uh, for which i chose my first 15 records myself then sam chose my next 15 records and vice versa so today was my 15th day and mine today was anthrax's among the living um and then tomorrow which is the day this podcast is going to come out so tomorrow the day this podcast release i'll start on sam's choices for me which is starts with dream theaters images and worlds but to answer your question sam the biggest surprise for me so far was definitely moving pictures by rush because, that fills me with so much joy well yeah because the album is absolutely incredible 
and it's a prog rock album. And as we've discussed several times on this podcast, prog rock and prog metal aren't really my thing. I don't really, I find them very self-serving, very pretentious at times and really just unnecessarily long to the point of holy shit, when will this end? But uh, absolutely not the moving pictures. That album is just genuinely fascinating uh, from start to finish, specifically uh, YYZ. I think I mentioned that to you a few days ago when we were talking about it. I can't imagine what it would have been like hearing that song in 1981. It, it, they must have been convinced that Neil Peart was some fucking alien or something. Uh, it, it's absurd. I just can't imagine anyone else was doing that in the 80s. Any, uh, not just I, in the early 80s, at any time in the 80s. Yeah, I listen to that. I listen to that now, and it still holds up as some of the most impressive feats of musicianship and songwriting I've ever heard. Um, it's just, it's just incredible. I, I love, I, I love, I love that album. I love it from start to finish. I think it's just a wonder. Tom Sawyer, YYZ, and oh. um, Limelight's a personal favourite for mine because I just love the chorus, that clean riff going into the guitar work. It's just gorgeous. A really, really beautiful album. I'm, I'm glad you're in. I'm, I'm glad you like it because then you can start to see a little bit of the why I was so like broken up when yeah. Neil Peart died. Yeah, yeah. And like you sort of listen now. to that album sort of thing and it's like, that's why he mattered so much mm. to so many sort of mm. thing. I mean, I, th- I think the best album or my favourite album that I've heard so far was Kanye West, The Cottage Dropout. Mate, I mean, that album is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, just, and uh, fascinatingly, considering now he's this like, he's transcended megastar. He's like, people will talk about him in terms of pop culture for the next three to 400 years. You know, he will always be looked back at as an icon above icon of of his generation. So to hear him so early into his career and right at the precipice of what would be the absolute mountain that he would climb musically, was but still amazing. Uh, What about for yourself? I'm biggest surprise and favourite you've heard in general thus far. Um, in terms of biggest surprise, um, uh, Radiohead. Mate, I, I saw your tweet that you put about this, and me and you take the piss out of Radiohead all the time. There's that classic meme that me and you always bring up, and your <laughs> that's which, still funny, which is still hilarious. Just did. <laughs> your 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 dad's not a fan of Radiohead, is he? He is actually. Oh, he is uh, a fan. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So. It's Coldplay that me and my dad share the the hatred for. Rightly so, obviously. Um, But um, the thing is about Radiohead is I've heard snippets of stuff and the stereotype had stuck with me as well because that matched up with the snippets that I'd heard where it's been like, all right, they're a bit dull, they're a bit pretentious. Tom York comes across as a bit aloof. Uh, I don't like his personality a lot. And that ties in with the bits of music that I'd heard scatterbrain, especially later in the career where it's slow. It's a bit... Well, frankly, and I think that it requires a lot of their listeners and you get radio hands, fan, head fans, head fans are a little bit like tool fans in the way that they are so convinced in their artists mm. that it's like they they will appreciate anything that's given out. But the Ben's Chris is, um, it really is in that top 1% of great British rock albums. Like, nice. like really, really is. It's in the What's the Story Morning Glory world in terms nice. of like... From start to finish, it's great song after great song after great song. A lot of them you've heard, but you didn't realise you'd heard. Um, but listening to it one after the other, it, it's it really is a, a 
really surprisingly great listen and one that I thought, I get it now. I get why they're revered. Right. Because it's just it's just superb. If you get a chance, I, I recommend just to press yeah. play on it as a singular experience, honest to God, because I went in expecting to legitimately not just dislike it to, to loathe the experience. Yeah. But I know that I, I I knew that I was supposed to try this sort of stuff out. And I've heard the people that like it just ardently live by it. So I get it. I, it is it is honestly a terrific album. We're talking all-time great rock album of the 21st century, at least in British rock, without a shadow of a doubt. Is that also your favourite record you've heard in general from this as well? Or is it just the most surprising? That's a, that's a, that's a tougher question, I think. Um, I would say my favourite album to have heard so far is White Pony by Deftones because it confirmed everything I already thought about Deftones. <laughs> that was my favourite experience so far. Fuck off. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to. Uh, but uh, Behemoth's The Satanist in typical Grebo fashion was also excellent. Um, it's, it's, it's a terrific black metal album and I think that's really hard to do in the last 10 years. Mm. Um, I just yeah. thought it's, I just think, it's, I think it's really superb. Um, I really enjoyed that. Also, a few shouts to Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral. Not my cup of tea, but I get it. Um, but overall, it's been a, been a wonderfully um, interesting experience. Just before we crack on with the news, Sam, it is worth reminding everyone that we are a fortnightly rock and metal podcast brought to you by Nose at Cut It Can, sponsored by Sarah Brown Records. On our last episode, we looked at new albums from Kid Capici and Humanity's Last Breath, as well as me and you having a duo interview uh, with Aaron and Ben from UK Tech. UK Tech Death Merchants Monasteries. Uh, on this week's episode, we're going to be speaking about the news uh, of Mice and Men's new EP, Timeless, the new Foo Fighters record, Medicine at Midnight. And this week, my Chris Meats was with Craig and Stu from The Young Hearts. They recently did an album called The Modern State, which I wrote my review for Noise and I spoke about on the podcast Twitter. We uh, And I have just been adoring that album for the last couple of weeks, very much uh, in the style of the Menzingers and Spanish love songs. Great, great record. It's a shame actually that that, al- that album didn't come out in a week where we would have been doing an episode. Cause I would have been curious of your thoughts on it. Very much like cold years, Sam. Um, oh, I really enjoyed that as well. And I yeah. think there's, um, there's an explosion of that type of heartfelt uh, alternative rock type stuff that's yeah. taking on um that's taking on a real sort of boon at the minute. This sort of like counting crows for the modern audience sort of style of songwriting is making a return. And I'm, I, I for one welcome it. Would like to also Sam very excitingly announce that there is going to be an extra noise podcast episode next Tuesday. Uh, all things being well, we can't promise that just yet because we are waiting on one specific thing to happen for us to be able to do it, but. Next Tuesday, we will hopefully be releasing one-off special podcast where we review the new Architects album for those that wish to exist. I could not possibly be more excited to hear that record and talk to you about it. That is hopefully going to be out as a one-off special next Tuesday where we just speak about purely that album before its release date on the 26th of February. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at Noise Podcast if you get the chance to. And also subscribe to us wherever you're listening. Uh, We're available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, we will be there. If you could give us a like or a subscription wherever you're listening, that would help us out more than you could possibly imagine. So on with the news, Sam. First on the agenda, and I mean... 
it's one of those things that literally happen. Me and you finish an episode similar to the to the oyster thing, where like we'd finish recording the episode and then there was an update on the situation. <laughs> literally, we finished our last episode two weeks ago. As soon as we finished recording, basically like six or seven hours later, this huge, huge swarm of information allegations uh, regarding Marilyn Manson uh, rose to the surface it's probably important actually that we point out first of all that these are accusations and marilyn manson has denied them uh fervently uh there's been rumors of mistreatment around women and marilyn manson before this sam i'm not sure whether you ever caught yeah. caught on to that uh, but I suppose what truly spoke the fires here was when a former girlfriend of his, Evan Rachel Wood, uh, revealed that it was Marilyn Manson, uh, well, Brian Warner, a.k.a. Marilyn Manson, who was her abuser. Uh, she put up a, an Instagram post detail, or, or, or one of Instagram or Twitter posts detailing incidents and what had gone on and what exactly had happened. A flock of other women then came forward, as well as some other musicians as well, confirming legitimacy of the claims. Uh, one of whom was Wes Borland, who said it, uh, that the stories were absolutely true. Um, I mean, Sam, I, I don't want or really feel the need to go into the detail of the allegations. If anyone's listening to this and you want to find out for yourself, you feel free to look that up. Uh, but Sam, I don't know how much you've looked into them, but they are pretty heinous, aren't they? Yeah, I, I did a lot of reading today. Um, I read uh, excerpts from the original Evan Rachel Wood testimony that she gave in 2018 yeah. that she later revealed to be Brian Warner. And then when you read it in that context, that's frightening. Yeah. Um, I read the interview where he made the, the sledgehammer remark mm. about Evan Rachel Wood in 2009. And, um, I also listened to his song Perfume off his latest album. I don't know if you've heard that where he, call, he actually calls out victim culture and calls uh, vic, uh, victim and pain the new chic and you wear, you're only as famous as you're hurt and all this sort of stuff and makes threats and uh, makes threats within the song towards this sort of stuff and you can absolutely draw the lines between the mm. narrative that's being created here. Um, the, the thing is here is obviously that the, these have coalesced now in, in these women coming together and deciding collectively, because it was clearly very much a orchestrated outing of Manson. It wasn't a random circumstance where women, I don't think, have have just randomly decided that today. I think there must have been. I think there might have been some communication that have led to this sort of coalescence because it happened so quickly, one after the other. Mm. Uh, there certainly seems to be a pattern emerging there. But like so many things, unfortunately. Um, if you look back over several examples of Manson's career, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, there are lots of odd incidents that you could point to and say, now in this new context, that, that and that make more sense, sadly, than they had done before. I mean, there was cases where there was police reports filed two years ago that were never came through because of lack of corroborating evidence, which might well be tied into the fact that the lack of witnesses coming forward in the way that they had did, had been recently. Um, there, are, there was a music video that he put out where a woman that looks almost identical to Evan Rachel Wood was actually beaten up during the video. Um, during that, obviously, there's the quotes he's given about fantasising about beating her up. There was already stories about him 
cutting himself um, over the phone to her when they were arguing uh, alongside varying other things, um, the length and nature of which we don't need to go into, like you said. Even the, even this version that I'm giving is like a sort of executive highlights. So yeah, speak. you're scratching the surface here, aren't you? Yeah, I really, I really, really am. Uh, the, the sad thing is, is that with a more critical eye of a Manson's activity of the last 10 to 50, 15 years, it should not have taken something like this to point out what he has done. Mm. Because it seems to have been, especially the industry circles at the very least, common knowledge that Manson acted in this sort of way, at least from an eye- eyewitness standpoint, an anecdotal standpoint. And this evidence that is coming out is um, is damning. Um, he had an interview um, two years ago with Metal Hammer where they brought up the allegations made by Evan Rachel Wood, not directly attributed to him, just the, the, the testimony she gave. And the he hung up the interview. Oh, I've got that um, magazine. That wasn't two years ago, dude. That was like a couple of months ago. All right, my mistake. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was November, wasn't it? Yeah, it was November. I've got, I've got yeah. the magazine. Sorry, my yeah, mistake. Yeah, yeah no, no, I just wanted to point his new album. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out in case someone commented. Sorry, get him off. No, no, get him, get him mixed up. Thank you for doing that as well. And the the magazine then followed up by asking him some questions um, to follow up, and the PR were very evasive mm. um, about the way that they responded to certain questions and, and, and said that we don't know the content of what you're trying to publish, so we don't want to answer any questions about it. Yeah. Hammer were like, this is actually what we want to know. Do you want to answer questions about it? And it, it was clear that they're just trying to weave away um, and try and maintain this sort of public image. But yeah, it, obviously these are some horrible crimes that obviously he has denied and should face in the court of law, and justice should be served. For it, whether that's um, as a whatever outcome of that trial is, justice should be served. Um, but it appears to be um, the the prevalent thought that I have had while looking at this evidence is it's very easy for this to come out and then look back over the last decade and say, well, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, then, well, th- this, these ev- this evidence was just there two weeks ago. Only this time it's been corroborated by someone poking a spotlight at it. It's just, it's just very sad that if this has been sitting here dormant for 15 years, I mean, he even admitted to beating up his mother in his autobiography, um, like with a glass bottle. Um, and, choking her and all this sort of stuff this isn't this is that's his old admission that he did this so this is not a man unaccustomed to violence or this is not a man where violence being associated with him should be considered unsurprising so why did it take evan rachel wood who already gave a legal um a legal sort of uh account of this where she actually said this is an a recent ex-partner and this is what's happened why wasn't then manson at least questioned at least brought brought in and and then he continued to put albums out and he's on TV shows and it, it just it points out to unless it's fully in the spotlight with the attention of the sort of the world social media on it that unfortunately these things don't act as act as quickly as they could have or should have. Well, you mentioned something that I'd like to just branch off slightly there about people that would have known about this for years in terms of in the industry and it's only just been brought up. And I have seen, we're going to speak at length about comment sections in, in a few moments, but I have seen one of the prevailing comments that quite regularly come up is, well, 
if Metal Hammer have known about this or other, you know, rant insert metal or alternative music magazines or websites have known about this for years, why are they only talking about it now? Well, the problem with that is that can you That's imagine cool. if can you imagine if three years ago Metal Hammer released a piece and were like, hey, uh, we we've got a good idea that Marilyn Manson's an abuser. I mean, the lawyers of Marilyn Manson would probably shut the whole magazine down. Marilyn Manson's like a legitimate, incredibly, incredibly successful musician. Uh, I can, I, I don't know his exact financial status, but I, I'd assume he's a millionaire. I'd assume he's got outstanding lawyers. You know, a, a random online music site cannot come out and be like, we've, we've caught wind of this. Our, our official sources suggest this. They can't do that. They would be torn apart. I don't even think that case would make it to trial, Sam. I think they'd have to just concede no. out of court. It, they'd get no, slaughtered. Metal Hammer could barely afford publishing two and a half years ago. They can't afford a defamation trial hosted by Marilyn Manson. And he sort of, Marilyn, Marilyn Manson managed to successfully uh, get himself out of like the PRMC and like all this Columbine stuff. Marilyn yeah. Manson managed to like legally wriggle himself. Like, do you know what I mean? This is a man who is not unaccustomed. To, and in Columbine, I actually I, I respected greatly in that moment for that yeah. particular thing, as the way yeah. that he defended the freedom of artistry and that sort of stuff. What I'm trying to say is that if you've got an issue with Manson, he has historically never shied away, and that would that would that would not work. Um, and as well, I think um, there are different rules that concern the arms of the law and the arms of the entertainment press and journalism in general. And as well, Metal Hammer um, are not, they're not the Guardian. They're not no. the, they're not the Washington Post. They don't have the sort of legal representation that these big uh, newspapers and news corporations have. Like, for example, if someone sues the Sun, then Rupert Murdoch foots the bill and they print an apology the next week. Yeah. They're a part of a huge conglomerate and uh, media corporation. Same with Fox. Um, Metal Hammer absolutely cannot do that. They only can do what they did. This is yeah. what has come out. What is your comment on it? Yeah. Um. What well, our questions about? Well, why didn't why didn't the newspapers come out of it? No, 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 no. Is why didn't any of the music record label musicians, yeah. people within Marilyn Manson Circle, take this formally to law enforcement? Take this formally to the police? Mm. Um. Why is it got to get to a point where a woman who has been abused for 20 years needs to swallow her own fear and post this publicly on social media, apparently against threats against her own life? Why does that? Why does she need to go through that process just to even draw a light on this? If you, if Wes Borland is saying that this is factual, and Wes Borland and so many other people who are now Marilyn Manson in a variety of different ways somebody somewhere has turned a blind eye when they shouldn't have. Yeah, you're right. Somebody yeah. somewhere has been a, if not an eyewitness, a corroborating witness to something that has gone on, a overheard argument. There is no way, if Ma if Manson is taking girls on tours around his, around his house and mentioning offhand to these women that there is a quote-unquote rape room, which is what was mentioned the other day as well, if that is the conversation that he's happy to have with people, then there are more. There is more evidence that people have overheard that has not yet come to the surface that should have been brought to the attention of law enforcement 
God knows how long ago. It should not have taken the women themselves to overcome this fear. Too many people, I feel, must have known about this to the extent where this this became a legal issue long ago. I actually think that Metal Hammer should be praised, Sam, for how they've hand, how they handled it in the sense of printing that interview. That where they were like, hey, you know, he hung up on us when we spoke about this and we reached back out and they were like, no. They could they could so easily have just been like, right, okay, we'll squash that's that. Dead and then we'll, we'll just we'll stop squ- it. Yeah, we'll squash that entire piece. Uh, we'll do an article on Sabaton instead. We'll get in touch with their PR and we'll we'll do something about how they're handling lockdown. Easily. They could glad they didn't do that. Well. I mean, well, yes, <laughs> but that my point is that they could they could have axed that article at any point and just be like right okay we we won't go there then we'll get yeah. insert another metal artist or metal band or alternative rock and we'll print that piece instead but instead of that they went ahead and printed the article printed the facts that happened he hung up once we started speaking about this we reached back out and we got this response i think they've handled it tremendously and the way that they've covered the goings on since Evan Rachel Wood's original post. But I think, I think for me, the conversational discourse is completely lost on some people and some of the replies I've seen Sam just defy logic and genuinely scare me. Scare me. I don't know why you've done it to yourself opinion. to put yourself in some of these comment sections. I man. know, I know. I, the, I draw it's myself the cesspool in. of society, man. It I is know. tough. I know, but I, I, I thought, you know, sometimes you you can check out comment sections, and you you know you're reminded of humanity every now and again. <laughs> Social media does give you a, a nice large slice of humanity that can you know put your faith back in society. But and, and I, sh- I should say actually, for the most part, most comments I've read were very much damning of Manson and praising the women that have that have come forward and uh, sympathising with their incredibly difficult position and sympathising sorry, with their incredibly traumatic experiences with him. But, you know, let, let's just talk about some of the ones that, I, that I've seen. The, the why is she only bringing it up now, which, which I think is, is a, a, a disgusting response because to Because of comments like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because of comments like that. You know, the, the, the whole... Why didn't she just announce it when it originally happened? Why didn't she go directly to the police? Why didn't this happen? Or why didn't X, Y, Z happen? It's really easy to say that sitting from outside the fence. Now, I'm really fortunate in the sense that I've never suffered abuse from another human being. But I, I can imagine how difficult it must be if once you've got to that point where you're genuinely scared of someone, scared of what they might they may do, scared of repercussions if you upset them, that you would then say, hey, but I'm, I'm going to sneak out of the house and run off to the police station. The, the concept of abuse doesn't work as cut and dry as, hey, I got abused yesterday, so I'm going to make sure I go to the police today. It, it's just not as simple as that. What another one, Sam? That literally this one, I, I I couldn't believe this. Um, well, it's Marilyn Manson. What did she expect? Uh, all right then. So if we heard a news oh, story, gosh. if we heard a, if we heard a news story tomorrow that Mark Calloway has been tombstone and it's tombstone and his wife, I'd come out and say, well, he does play the Undertaker on telly. What was she thinking? You know, it's, it's absurd. Funny, 
Yeah, I, just, uh, I don't. Woman, understand woman how... marries footballer, complains when used as as as, as football. Like what? What is insane? It's that's not how this works. Um, there's there's so there's so much ignorance in the two comments that you've that you've read out. Um, if you are, I mean, if you are in a long term relationship with someone, you have intimate feelings for them, and they are abusive in any regard. There is a conflict let alone in one when you are also fearing for that person's life, when they are uh, a powerful figure in an entertainment industry that you are also a part of mm, yeah. as well. It must be remembered. She's not an external piece in Manson's life where he plucked her out of the crowd. Um, but on top, on top of that, <laughs> the crime is not lessened because it took the victim a length of time to finally overcome the fear to get it out. Um, just because a war veteran has PTSD and can't talk about Iraq, that doesn't mean that the bombs didn't go off until he said that they did. Like, it's an insane, insane thought process. And people speak to therapists day in, day out about repression and how that they, people naturally bury painful memories within themselves and it takes years and years and years for these things to come out later. And then they figure out that the reason that they're acting in certain ways is because of these repressed memories. One bad childhood memory that you've forgotten can actually be the catalyst for behaviour 10, 20 years down the line. You've not drawn that connection because you've already forgotten elements of it. Um, but either way, the principle of well, why she mentioned it now is insane because there was a police report filed in the Me Too movement that didn't go to court because there wasn't enough corroborating evidence. She gave a um, legal commission inquiry report where she said that she had an ex-partner that repeatedly raped her and Marilyn Manson wasn't even brought in for questioning, despite the fact that he was on a short list of people that qualified to be her ex-partner. And that was only two years ago. He admitted to beating up his own mother with a glass bottle and he has not been arrested for that, despite the fact that he's literally a written confession <laughs> sold to the public. Yeah. And people are saying, why did this take this now? It could have come out two days afterwards, but unless we had Twitter, he might not have been uh, he might have been dropped by his record label about it. The only difference between the 90s and now is that we have enough social media to put pressure on record labels because they're afraid of what social media will do to them. That is the only difference in every other area of society. We are willfully ignorant to things happening about people that we care about. And and if Manson was Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen, i.e. a white button, collar, white American male who is associated with the, the, the standard American lifestyle, this would have been handled very differently over the last 10 years because they'd have thought, hold on, that doesn't quite add up. Whereas Manson has built this reputation of being controversial and Avert and shocking and and all this sort of stuff. So when stories about him being intimidating came out, people thought of themselves, "Oh, that matches up with his stage image. It must just be exaggerated stories, just like his makeup is." Uh, let's draw a comparison. A week ago, Bruce Springsteen was arrested for having a shot of tequila in front of a policeman. Right? Yeah. Um, he they did the breathalyzer, and he had 0.2 alcohol in his system, which is like a tenth. Of the um, of the uh, of the actual alcohol limit, and he was still arrested, and he was still, you know, he was obviously he wasn't put in jail or anything like that, but he, he was arrested, and then it, it came out that the police might have 
you know, sort of jumped on the chance to arrest Springsteen because yeah. he actually was doing nothing illegal. He was he was riding him out of like he was sat by it rather than on it mm. and that sort of stuff. He wasn't, you know what I mean? And it was the idea that because of Springsteen's reputation as a perfect heroic rock star figure in American culture, police saw it as a, a fun opportunity perhaps to take down this sort of cult figure. Whereas in Manson's circumstance, the opposite has worked for him. He has become so controversial, and like nothing has become unbelievable. And that, I think, has skewed the line and the, the black and white nature of some of these crimes. Um, where people have thought, oh, well, it's Manson, no, it's just ridiculous. Like in the same way that the stories about Mike Tyson came out in the 90s about him like being, um, being a domestic abuser and a, a, a supposed rapist and stuff. And, it, and people were like, well, yeah, have you seen what he did to Buster Douglas? And it's like, that's not the fucking saying. Yeah. Personal versions of what these people are and what these characters are. And I think Manson has almost got away with it more so because of how people associate with him being a controversial figure. And the last time people went after him, Columbine stuff, the parental advisory stuff, PRMC, he actually won. So he's got a history of actually beating this and maybe there's a level of intimidation there too. But none of this is ever Rachel Wood's fault. None of that. And to even insinuate that, I think he's just, it's its so callous. It's so ignorant. It's, it's evil. It really is. I think one of the big shames of this, Sam, is, and you, I suppose you were actually kind of talking about it, people's lack of faith in the, in the judicial system that they feel like this is the biggest way of delivering a, delivering a consequence to their abuser is to, is to reveal it in this way. They feel like the greatest way to kind of make awareness and to cause any kind of sustainable damage that might actually make a difference is to announce it on social media platforms. It's not call the police. It's send the tweet, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say this now and I'm going to say before I give this statistic away, there's a lot of caveats to this, which aren't, which I, I, I can't include because I don't know them. And all I've got here is just a number that comes before another number that comes before the year they were reported in. So I literally, this is on the gov.uk website um, in 2019, 32 arrests per every 100 domestic abuse crimes reported. So that's that means there's 68 domestic abuse crimes that were reported that didn't actually end up resulting in an arrest. Now, like I say, loads of caveats there. I'm not going to try and yeah, yeah, false uh, allegations. Uh, there's all claims, there's all sorts of reasons. I'm not going to try and pick apart what they might be because that is absolutely not my place, and I've got absolutely bare minimum knowledge on the law, etc. But Sam, I mean, it is quite. a quite a, a startling figure isn't he 32 out of 100 it's a jar it's a jarring number i mean i mean you could you could make you might have several arguments for that and and the, the whole innocent or proven guilty uh, adage is still applies to a crime that we don't like like violence and things like that but if every call was dealt with as a criminal offense and immediately the person was arrested and brought in front of the police question and then released if innocence was proven that's better, isn't it? Uh, that's a better circumstance. It might not fix any particular problems, but if the if victims feel that police are more active and more happy to represent them and act on this in a quicker and more efficient manner, then maybe uh, more more calls would be made. 
but the th- the thing is as well, it's it's like it's like the old it's like the old stereotype about murder, isn't it? How you're so much more statistically chance of being murdered by someone that you know, yeah, than someone than someone that you don't. It, it's the domestic violence is a case in point. I mean, you're more likely to be domestically abused by a, a husband, a wife, a spouse, a partner, a, a, a father or parental figure than, than than someone random off off the street. And as such, that creates this this terrifying conflict that renders the victims. Uh, like some sort of self-conscious paralysis almost it's such a horrible horrible crime obviously um but no one should ever come out of this at all thinking that evan rachel wood should be held responsible for for any any of this any any of any of this at all um put you try and put yourself in her shoes just just for a, just for a minute try and imagine what that would have been like over the last 10 or 15 years, knowing that you went through this at the hands of someone who's so popular and so famous that by revealing that, this is a man who was also threatened and, and, and sort of made allegations against other people. It's just a horrible thing to consider. And yeah, I agree that it obviously highlights the, the lack of faith that we have in our judicial system, which unfortunately, you don't have to look very far to see the evidence as to why. No. We are we are what less than a year removed from George Floyd, um, a, a a man who should have been impeached yesterday was not impeached. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of examples of misinformation and mistrials constantly. Uh, this is just an unfortunate another another spotlight of that that social media has come, came into this way to sort of replace normal justice. It's, We've turned into this sort of republic, um, sort of martial law type circumstance where the public forum is deciding guilt and absence of guilt, and it's a it's a such a sad state of affairs. I mean, if you're a woman looking at the response of the metal community, you, you would just be horrified. I mean, some of the posts that have been put up on Facebook by sites reporting have been the subject of laugh reacts on the post now again caveat maybe they were putting a laugh react because they thought it's funny that manson's finally been caught but use your brain use your head using that kind of using a laugh react emoji on a on a news story of someone being abused by marilyn manson looks like you find the whole thing funny use your head it's just this mind-boggling stupidity. And if I was, you know, a young woman that was interested in alternative music and I took one look at the comment section or reaction from some people regarding this story, I would be horrified and would have to really convince myself that, okay, that 10 to 15% of absolute morons over there are worth putting up with for the 85% of other people that have actually got a brain and are more, much more accepting as they should be. Now, whether the percentages are actually that low and high, I don't know. They might be much more even than what I've just described, but I'm just going off from what I saw when I was looking through. It was generally a lot of sympathising with Evan Rachel Wood and glad, he was finally, glad the allegations have finally been brought to light. There was a lot more of that than there was. This is a joke. Why has it only been brought up now? What did she expect? And, and people find it funny. The well, whole it, the whole thing 
it's just an abs. You know, just just you know, read through it yourself if you listen to this. It is really, really disturbing, and the the reaction of the few is yet again more proof that there is still a lot, lot of work that needs to be done in terms of teaching people how to handle and how they should feel about certain societal issues. There's a lot more work that needs to be done. Well, I complete. I completely agree. Now, me and, me and you have both got ties to this industry especially alternative music um and, and neither one of us have children mm. you listen to listen to this and and, and the, the the thought crosses your mind man it's like man i don't want my daughter to grow up and get into this sort of music sometimes yeah yeah i get it yeah you know what, you know what i mean like okay. you, you you think you think you think to yourself man like if i've got a 15 year old daughter and she's taking herself to to gigs and concerts where these sort of people are and and thought and, and i know that I, with me and you are both in this industry and both in this fan base mm. and uh, all of my best friends have been made through music like without a shadow of a doubt but the thought of of having a, a young girl in your life living in these worlds and, and dealing with these attitudes day to day dispels any notion that the idea of of societal sexism and the maltreatment of women has not at all shifted in the way that it hasn't. And used to people still complain about me too. Like it was this evolution of just complaining women <laughs> that are like mm. taking back um, some self-perceived slight when it's clear from stories like this, that me too has only scratched the surface, hasn't it? Yep. About what has gone on across the film music industry. And it's just so, so, so sad. We're going to move on, Sam, to something that I think we're going to have uh, much more enjoyment talking about. Uh, the Rock and Roll Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees. Uh, think it Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> Thanks for that one. Uh, this year's uh, 2021's nominees have been announced. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to run through them here. Mary J. Blige, uh, Kate Bush, uh, Devo, Foo Fighters, The Go-Go's, Iron Maiden, Jay-Z, Chaka Khan, Carol King, uh, Fella Cutie, LL Cool J, known for his great, great addition to rock and roll, probably that song he did with Jennifer Lopez, uh, New York Dolls, Rage Against the Machine, Todd Rundgren, uh, Tina Turner and uh, Dion Warwick. Uh, Sam, one of the reasons why I brought this up is because Iron Maiden are including this nominees list and... I just want to read you a quote that Bruce Dickinson said about uh, the awards previously. I actually think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is an utter complete load of bollocks, to be honest with you. It's run by a bunch of sanctimonious bloody Americans who wouldn't know rock and roll have hit them in the face. They need to stop taking Prozac and start drinking fucking beer. Now, Sam, what do you think the odds are of... Because I looked... I looked on their social media platforms and to be fair, they haven't posted about the fact that they're one of the nominees... If they get inducted into this Hall of Fame, Sam, what are the odds of Iron Maiden putting a post out about it saying, hey, we're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Because um, they shouldn't really, I should think they? they'd celebrate it. Oh, no, they shouldn't. But I still I still think they'd celebrate it. For, uh, I think they'd probably put up a little, put a little video and a little thing. Um, I... The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a bit, it's a bit of nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. Let's just call it what it is. It's, it's the, uh, it's, it's 
kind of a bit like the kind of a bit like the Grammys, but kind of sort of like it's trying to trying to be something more than that culturally. Um, now, obviously, like I've got now a major issue with you know a few that I imagine Rage Against the Machine like these are yeah incredibly uh, nine inch nails. These are incredibly impactful rock and roll musicians and performers, and I have absolutely no problem with almost all of these guys getting in. But pendulum is starting to shift towards not away from purely rock and roll artists and towards the metaphorical spirit of what rock and roll kind of stands for. And it now seems to represent anyone that's a bit cool in the eyes of the music industry and has actually moved away from rock and roll as a genre itself. And I think I, I managed to have a look through some of the, the winners. And I think uh, I think I've pinpointed pretty much where this started to happen. So pretty much from from the get go, it started in 1986, Rock Hall of Fame. And it, the first nominees were just no brainers. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis, Sam Cooke, Chuck Berry, Smokey Robinson, Beach Boys, Temptation, Stevie Wonder. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like mm. incredibly impactful uh, music artists. You know, then it goes like Johnny Cash, Jimi Hendrix, whatever. Um, 99 to 2000s, not bad at all. I mean, they put Janet Jackson in there at some point, which I thought was really strange. Um, Pink Floyd, yeah, no no issues there. Obviously, Springsteen gets in, Clapton, you know, whatever. 2008, Chris. 2008. Um, after the year after the year before which, Patti Smith, Van Halen and the Ronettes went in. Right. Um, Madonna. And inducted by Justin Timberlake. Right. In 2008. Yeah. There was no context for that leading up to it. There wouldn't even build up to it slowly. Madonna, who is literally named the Queen of Pop, <laughs> it, by the way. It just yeah. wanted to point that out somewhat. Uh, and then after that, it is a shit show of like weird concoctions of stuff. So the year after, you get Jeff Becker Metallica, thumbs up, Run DMC and ABBA. <laughs> what the fuck? Well, there um, might have been a riffing dancing queen. That's probably why Aberdeen. Minutes to Midnight was an Iron Maiden song, apparently. So maybe that guess what it's from. Um, give me, give me, give me some minutes to midnight. Um, Gen- 2010 Genesis, thumbs up. Jimmy yep. Cliff, reggae artist, thumbs down. Um, <laughs> um, Neil Diamond. Okay. Yeah, 2011, Darlene Love. Do you remember the song I Want to Be Home for Christmas? It's in Home Alone 2 when he runs through New York. Yeah. She sung that. Fucking hell. Um, uh, Tom White's Beastie Boys, cool. Thumbs up. A band called The Crickets, who were the backing band for Buddy Holly, who was already in the um, Rock and Roll of Fame. So his backing band got in separately. <laughs> Playing the music that was the background to Buddy Holly songs. Name me one person who said that's a cracking riff about Buddy Holly songs. One, just one of them. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's just public enemy. Twenty thirteen. All right, okay. At this point, is it rebellion, rock and roll, sort of historics? Yeah. Fine. Donna Summer, twenty thirteen. <laughs> I'm what? Hall and Oates, twenty fourteen. <laughs> like it's just off the fucking rails. Green Day got in in twenty fifteen. Got no problem with that. Absolutely no problem with that. Um. John Boyes as a folk artist, Tupac in 2017. The Moody Blues. What is going on? The Zombies got in before Iron Maiden. 
It's become beast. a parody of itself, hasn't it? it? It has become a parody of itself. Whitney Houston got in this year, getting in this year. I'd, what is it? What it's absurd, Chris. It, it, it's absolutely absurd. So at some point in the late two thousands, they either stopped, um, came out like ran out of rock bands that they liked, yeah, and just started picking up artists at random, or they thought, oh, we should stop celebrating the sixties. We need to appeal to a new audience. And started picking these contemporary artists, but then call it the Music Hall of Fame. Yeah, and you can start putting in. You can put in fucking Beethoven if you want. Then you can do what you want, but calling it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and having in like some of these artists just it just doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't make. And then there are so many omissions as well that aren't in there that make the inclusions even more ridiculous. Like. Victoria's P.I.G. is getting in. Okay. But then it's like, where is X, Y, and Z band? Why is it taking you 40 years to put in T-Rex? <laughs> like, and then it's you're putting in like, that's, like who, who between 2019 and 2020 rediscovered T-Rex? Yeah. Like, it was like, oh, we forgot about T-Rex. It just makes... Oh, it it just makes no sense to me. It, it's it's really daft, but yeah, like two thousands, they just started going off the rails and they haven't looked back. Well, I mean, I, I don't know a lot of the artists that are listed on on this Hall of Fame nominees for this year, Sam. But see, I mean, I kind of made a joke about it earlier. LL Cool J, what the most rock and roll thing he's done is probably survive not dying in Anaconda with John Voight. I mean, what the fuck? Wait, what's LL Cool J? Don't even be listing his nominees. And it, it, obviously, you know, it, it, it just, it just. I couldn't even actually make the case if you told me I had to make the case for him. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't be able to. Uh, uh, what on earth? Um, it, it, look, it's it, this, but it is literally just a parody of itself. And uh, I think, like you said, they've run out of rock bands, and they're just chucking anyone in there that they fancy. But if that's going to be the case, then, like you said. Just call it the music hall of fame because all, all it does is just make it look stupid and pointless. The whole thing, you know, the fact you mean, I, I mean, I think if you if you put a gun to my head, Sam, I think I am made and rage against the machine and Foo Fighters are going to get in. I can't see those three artists not getting in. But even if they do, it's going to be like, oh yeah, in the rock and roll hall of fame, cool. What else happened today? Because it, it, it's just not the oh, same the kind of honor that it would have that it would have been in the early to mid-2000s. I did just want to bring it up because I knew there would just be some ridiculous things that we'd have to say about it. But, I mean, Tina Turner and ML Cool J, what on earth? I mean, that is... They've put them in there for a laugh. It's got... So that's like a sophisticated wind-up at Rock and Roll Hall of Fame HQ. That is it's, definitely... It is, it, is, it is insane, isn't it? Because, like, next, next year, it's going to be, like, Elton John, Slayer and the fucking cast of Glee. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mate, uh, we are going to move on to reviews. Starting uh, with the Mice and Men's new EP, Timeless. It's released on the 26th of February via Sharptown Records. My God, I love Sharptown. Their roster's amazing. Um, It's the follow-up to 2019's Earth and Sky. Sam, I think there's something to be said for Mice and Men's ability to not just stay in the game, but still be front runners in modern metalcore. You'll remember, mate, that when Austin Carlyle left in 2016, 2017, I can't remember the exact year, 
I think me and you might have even said it looked like the future for the band could kind of be in the balance. You know, it, Austin Carlyle wasn't just the front man. He was the internationally known star for the band. And at that point, Aaron Pauly was, who is now vocalist and bassist, was bassist and, I hate using the term melodic vocalist, but that's what he was. He was the bassist and he, he sung the melodic choruses. Um, and then, Sam, they released an album called Defy in yeah. 2018. Really good as well. Really good. Me and you saw them on that tour. If you remember, I, I, I kind of bought tickets for us on a whim. I was like, mate, it's 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 a gig. Wage war supporting. We like of boys some men. We like wage war. Let's go and have some beers, man, and watch some. Oh god, it's making me sad just thinking about it now. Just the ability to be like, hey, there's a gig in, on Tuesday. Yeah. Have some beers and watch some metal. Oh god, what I wouldn't give. Anyway, Sam, uh, we we listened to the album, really liked it. Caught them at that gig, and mate, we, we left that gig, and we said, man, we are certain this band has still got a future. Like Aaron Pauly, really, really, really does well. So impressive in this band. Earth and Sky came out literally a year after, which was an incredible turnaround. Uh, great record for what it was. And now here we are, Sam. So I suppose the best way for me opening this up to you is to ask, going into this record, where were you with the Mice and Men? Were you still incredibly interested? Had you gone off the boil? Had they somehow become forgotten in the mix for you? Um, I think that's a fair question. I, I was still... You hear the name of Mice and Men, that that hype, that hype and that interest is never gonna entirely go away. Mm. Um for 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 a um because for a metal band for a decade, they really released just four relatively peerless metal albums, didn't they? Yeah. Um and that, that I I'm always gonna be of the opinion that really until you hit a certain point in your career, you always have the chance of of getting back to those sort of levels. Yeah. And because because Defy was so good and because the live performance was really, really positive, and, and because their recent material has been really good as well. I was excited for it. I was um, I was surprised it was just an EP. Um, I thought that, given that they were able to release two records within two years of each other, I was surprised that they're only producing sort of two or three songs. Um, but maybe that's a reflection of lockdown and slow down the writing process and things like that. But anyway, separate conversation. From a mental aspect, I went into this really, really excited. Um, I was really intrigued to hear it, and I was not disappointed. At all, at all, at all. This is a really, really exciting EP. Oh, my God. Yeah, mate, these three songs are great. I mean, for me, mm -hmm. I think they are quite clearly a, a teaser for something more that is to come. And I, I'm really, really excited about the future of Mice and Men again. New era, new label, and it feels like loads of eyes are back on them again. Sam, I was really, really impressed with these three songs. Uh, mate, Timeless and Obsolete both the kind of thing that you'd expect to hear from of mice and men that high tempo rhythm guitar and slick yep. leads over the top call my nights in a big chorus from aaron and let's just speak about aaron for a second man he has nailed everything he's done in this band everything <laughs> yeah. he's brilliant aaron poorly i don't think he gets enough credit you know people sam rightfully discuss cody Cristal from wage war as one of the you know the best voices in metalcore i don't think aaron is far behind him at all especially on this show i think aaron paul is brilliant man i agree i'd actually give the edge to aaron because i think he's got the level of aggression on the harder stuff that just can't the 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 vocalist comparison for Wedge will can't really sort of contest with. He's got that versatility. Um, he's the MVP of this. 
Oh yeah, like without 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 a shadow of a doubt. And also, it's worth remembering that just because Austin Carlyle is no longer with the band, the other four members can still work their way around a riff, can't they? Yeah. There's still some there's still some transitions and breakdowns and moments in here where you're like, oh shit, I remember this. I remember my summit. They sound um, more polished though. Yeah. What I will say is that since their earlier days, they seem to have um, sewn up and sort of buttoned up their sound a little bit, which I actually think has benefited them. But I think um, I think they're really great. I um, Timeless is just up tempo. It's it's terrifically heavy. Classic metalcore vibes here, and uh, I felt the same about um, the riff opening on um, Obsolete, which Mate, kind of reminded me of early early as I lie dying. So I, I heard that like, guitar harmony at the start, and I thought Sam is going to be absolutely here for this. Honestly, it was um, it was wonderful. Like it's that's what I that's what I want to that's what I want to hear in metalcore. I I will never not love that type of stuff. Mm. That is all it all it is for me. Um, the welcome return to it felt like earlier of my but with Aaron Pauly, but Aaron Pauly singing over it on the on the melodic bits really was a bit of a throwback to some of the really early successes when they were just managing that dichotomy between the heavy and the incredibly melodic and stuff. What was the real thing before um, that I think has got better based on this EP is that one of the criticisms I remember having for Defy was that I felt that it was really good, but it didn't have that next huge chorus gear that it felt like it was building to. It was a collection yeah. of very good metal core songs, but it didn't have that, oh, I need that hit. Where's the next second and spring? Where's the next depth? Yeah, yeah. Where's the... And I feel that this actually has that. Mm-hmm. Um very reminiscent to Polaris in terms of the way that the guitars um, and the choruses sort of meld together really, really nicely. The songwriting here is clean. It's really sort of methodical. And I actually enjoy that. That's actually refreshing to hear as a listener, especially after so many um, records, actually, where we've listened to so many chaotic sort of transitions that are obviously incredibly positive. But I have actually enjoyed this one being this sort of methodical breakdown, riff, chorus stuff. They know exactly who they are what they're good at, what their capabilities are. And I think this is an example of, of all the real positives. And also I think the final track anchor was really, really good because they actually experimented with some atmospherics, didn't they? Yeah. You heard a little bit of the electronica stuff. I actually liked the little fade out at the end with that kind of sinister electronic sort of tone reminiscent of like, I don't know, a few sort of like industrial type bands that you would have heard in that sort of early 2000s feel where they're sort of swaying away. I like that. It seems ambitious. It's expansive. It's well mixed, well played, well polished. Of Mice and Men, um, I mean, it's cliche, isn't it? Of Mice and Men are back. They've been back for a while, but they should no longer be thought of as that band that Austin Carlyle used to be in. They're their own entity. They're very good at this version. And if if the album's as good as this, like if there's 12 songs of this quality, then you can sit down and legitimately have a discussion about where this ranks in of most men's catalogue period we don't necessarily hopefully this album stops the deviation between the pre-carlyle and the post-carlyle and there's a good album that can actually you know properly like be a top two top three of mice and men record that can reignite that career because they're a they're a class metalcore band and they they should be playing um out to arenas and playing on big tours um and, and you know main stage of download and stuff like that that is that is where they deserve to be just a further stamp the job that Aaron Pauly does on this record. He was also the producer. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Aaron, Paul, Aaron Pauly has gone from the guy that, can you do chorus vocals and do bass for us, please? 
to Aaron Pauly is now the absolute vocal front of Of Mice and Men and creative front for Of Mice and Men as well. And honestly, mate, thank God for that because and Austin Carlyle, there are several reasons why I'm glad he's not on Of Mice and Men anymore. Let's not get down that rabbit hole. But, mate, the last record, if we just speak of it purely musically, mate, the last record that Austin Carlyle was on, Cold World, sucked. It wasn't good yeah, at it was all. Terrible. It was the worst thing that my men have ever done. And when when and they he went to this weird riffless new metal scape, didn't they? they just yeah. Didn't suit them. And when he when he first left, before obviously the allegations came out about Austin, when he originally left, it was because and he said in an Instagram post replying to someone, "Oh no, I left because they wouldn't let me write what I wanted to write, and I refused to write anything that I don't want to write." Uh, well, I'm in terms of like I say. He's got lots of allegations against him. You can look into that if you want. I'm glad that he hasn't got a, a spotlight on him anymore. Um, as, as well as obviously his health issues as well that played a part. But if we're speaking purely musically, I, I'm, I'm glad he left. I think I think it's done of mice and men the world of good. I think getting behind, fully behind Aaron and putting him at the centre gear is a tremendous step. And mate, the, the closing song on this, which you were talking about, Anchor, it's led by Aaron's bass line. That's how much faith the band have got in him. And obviously with him as the producer, how much faith he's got in himself as well. I think this EP is really, really great. I personally believe that it is a precursor for something else that's going to be around the corner. And I think it's a terrific trio of songs that have really, really got me excited for what comes next. And it seems like of mice and men have been sitting under the surface for the last couple of years. And I'd love to see them reclaim their former size because, mate, of mice and men's restoring force hit number four in the Billboard 200. Number four, to put that into context, Lamb of God's highest ever position in the Billboard 200 was seven. That's how big of Mice and Men were. They were huge. They were they yeah, rode they... that wave of modern metalcore massively. Then Pierce the Veil, terrible. Stephen Resirens, also terrible. Uh, Memphis May Fire, also oh, not very good. But those those four bands, mate, they really rode that wave and took advantage of that surge that was in the early 2010s. Of most of men were absolutely like ginormously big, uh, and then uh, then unfortunately that their solid team to go on a bit of a downturn. But mate. Another, a record, you know, if this EP ends up culminating a record of this, I think it's not massively outside the realms of possibility for them. Maybe they'll, they won't ever get to a top five Billboard 200 band, but they could get back to headline in Brixton, which they had done previously, which is a 5,000 uh, capacity venue. I think this EP is great, dude. Really, really enjoyed it. I agree. I actually think that would be an incredible success. Ima- yeah. Imagine that after going through the trials and tribulations of what my men have been through, Basically, the vocalist having a a last album that put them on the their sort of on the ropes a little bit before reforming and rebuilding themselves to get to this point because music music is an unforgiving mistress, man, and people don't always just immediately get back if you lose fans. You don't always accrue that wealth back. So fair play to them. I I agree with you. I am incredibly optimistic and excited to have a band that many of which um, may have buried especially after Cold World and Austin's departure that appear to be showing some real signs of life and appear to be thriving as well. Um, on a side note, even even taking out the the, 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 the sort of the grey area or the, 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 the detail into the, what has gone on between Austin Carlisle and of Mice and Men, at the very least, I can assure and, and assume that they are 
probably enjoying the lack of press attention yeah. and the media. And uh, this must be, at the very least, a less stressful experience where they can express themselves and write what they want to write and work together. And it actually, I think you can hear that. Sam, we're going to finish off before my interview with the Young Hearts comes in uh, with a review of the new Foo Fighters record, Medicine at Midnight. It was released on February the 5th, so it's already been out for quite a while now on RCA Records. It's also worth pointing out that this album hit number one in the UK chart. Uh, It's Foo Fighters' fifth record to do so. One by one, Echo, Silence, Patience and Grace, Wasting Light and 2017's Concrete and Gold were the other four. Sam, before we get into this review, I'm going to ask you if you remember something that you said to me when we were really, really drunk before in our local. Oh, dear Lord. You turned to me and you said, Foo Fighters are the greatest rock band to never have had a great album. Now, at the time, I... Surprisingly philosophical. Because... <laughs> yeah! Considering how much we'd had, it was surprisingly philosophical. At the, at the time, I disagreed. I still disagree, actually. Um, their debut record and The Colour and the Shape, which was the follow-up to that, I, I do believe were, were both great records. But regardless, um, was that just a drunk musing of yours, or do you, do you genuinely believe that to be the case? No, a, a drunk, a, 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 was it a, a drunk mind speaks a sober heart? Yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I believe that. I don't think they've now. On a, on a, on a um, parenthesis by saying, I don't consider eight out of ten a great album. I right. consider that very good. Right. Um, I think when I say great, I mean top tier, all time great type, or at least you, you must know, hear this. Uh, yeah, or at, the, or at the very least, like were you one of the five best albums in your genre that year? Something like in that sort of world, just that general sort of excellence. Are there no fillers in this album? Are there, you know, that sort of stuff. Is it just a grade? Now, Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl have squeezed as much juice out of their collective talent, Orange, I think. No, no, this is not a criticism. This is not a criticism. Uh, Foo Fighters are Darren Fletcher. Um, <laughs> Fire, man. I was not expecting that. For the listeners, Darren Fletcher was a very good but not great midfielder for Manchester United who was decent. There's like, like, you know, he turned up. He didn't put a foot wrong too often. <laughs> Foo Fighters are great because they turned up to their shows, apparently. <laughs> hey, man, like, he's with broken legs. The best abilities availability. Um, but anyway, it's it's the the idea is that the, the the Foo Fighters I think are a very very good band that have a ceiling. I think Dave Grohl is a great frontman who has a ceiling. I think their guitarists are good guitarists that have a ceiling. You are never going to have the and I'm very sorry. Insert anonymous guitarist that isn't Dave Grohl on the front cover of Ultimate Guitar Hero. It's just the ultimate guitar. It's never going to happen. How did you write the lead pattern on fucking The Pretender? Oh, I just wrote what Dave told me to play. Um, and it, it, we're not, we're not, you know what I mean? Like, they, they're not an excellent band. They're not, I'm sorry. They're not, if you compare the, the Foo Fighters in terms of size, are they more talented than Guns N' Roses, Van Halen, ACDC? They sell as much as these, you know, uh, or at least in that ballpark. Are they, are they 
as talented as Queen, as as influential as Nirvana. No, no, they're not. They're, they're just they're just they're just not. But Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters have never released a bad album. They've never really had a bad show. <laughs> the face I just pulled at you then. Right, the face he just pulled. Uh, so clearly, Pew feels that a little bit differently about the current one. So we'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. Well, and I don't. And I don't think these. None of these are criticisms. But Foo Fighters are a B plus band. They're a B plus band, and in the absence of A star rock and roll talent since two thousand, which there has been. The Foo Fighters have become the quote-unquote last great rock and roll band. But really, they're very good that we've just sort of shuffled in in the same way that no one's ever putting Darren Fletcher into an all-time Manchester United eleven, despite the fact he has probably like five Premier League titles and he started every game for a couple of title teams and he was really invaluable for a couple of years and was very talented and when he got injured, they absolutely needed him. But no one's ever saying he's better than Skulls and no one should ever say that Foo Fighters are better than Queen. I'm not saying that anybody is. I'm just saying that we shouldn't. We should see the Foo Fighters exactly what they are, and they have squeezed every available talent out of their band by being consistent and releasing consistent, very good albums. They're a brilliant live act. Dave Grohl is the perfect rock star. He's a great interview. Loads of great charity work. He's he's someone that honestly he's so good and nice. I wish I was a massive Foo Fighters fan because I wish I was like it's a massive Foo Fighters for him. He's mm. awesome. Yeah, he is. He's the person. And he's he, everything you want rock and roll to be about. It is. Um, but he's never written an all-time great rock album. The best album Dave Grohl's been on, he's still never mind. It just is. Um, and I don't think that's a criticism of, of them at all. So that's the basis of when I said to you on that drunk idiot, they've never written a great album. They've just been very good. They're, they're, they're very good. That's all they are. They're B plus. They're right out of ten. As we speak, I say the last good Foo Fighters album was Wasting Light, which came out ten years ago. And since then, I feel like we've been hit by albums that exist for no reason other than Dave Grohl would probably be bored without being in the studio every two tour. or three years. You can get an album, he gets to tour. Well, the, the, you see, the, I saw That's someone. It, really. I saw someone say this that. Because I saw someone say, you know, criticise the album a bit, and someone responded with like, "Well, they've got to come up with a reason to tour every two years." And I was like, "Oh, please! Are you telling me Foo Fighters haven't released an album since 2011? They wouldn't still be selling out stadiums? Please! No one is no one when when Foo Fighters announce their next stadium tour. It does help we, though. It does and help. You can but, live it at the set list and yeah, band and stuff. Oh like. mate, when when Foo Fighters next uh, announce their next stadium tour, which me and you will try to go to. Yes, mate. No one is going to turn up at that stadium tour and be like, "Oh, I have to play Shame Shame off the new one." I mean, please, you know, I just, I'm sorry. Absolutely not. I should be like, yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Mate, well, we're going to get into that because I want to, mate. Cloud can spotter I... again. Oh. <laughs> mate, can I read this news story? Yeah, right. Could so, you? This, this was written um, by the NME uh, back in May, oh. 20, back in May oh, 2020. Okay. Right. Headline. Dave Grohl says Foo Fighters' new album album is, quote, our David Berry's Let's Dance record, unquote. Right, here we go. Oh, Terrible, no. then. Right. And this is what he said. 
It's filled with anthemic, huge sing-along rock songs. It's kind of like a dance record, but not an EDM disco modern dance record. It's got groove. To me, it's our David Bowie's less, less dance record. That's what we wanted to make. We wanted to make this really up, up-tempo, fun record. To which, Sam, as we get into actually reviewing the album, I have to say, did you listen to it before it come out? I mean, what the, uh, like, I, I will push back on that a little. It does have some groove and it's very clearly deliberately designed to be a dancey type of record. I mean, Although it there does. Was absolutely no sing-along rock songs on this album whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, it does have some groove to it. And obviously... It reminded me of like After Laughter by Paramore at times. Yeah, bits of that. It's a decent shout, actually. And, oh, you know, musicians talk up their upcoming album. You know, of course, Dave Grohl can't say, mm, to be fair, it, we're feeling a bit flat in the studio at the mini. I mean, it's just not going to happen. They're always going to talk up the upcoming release. That is part of the music, in music industry, of course. But then when you actually listen to this album, I can't help but look at this new story and just think, oh, my God, what, where, where, where are these sing-along anthemic rock songs? Sam, I don't hate this album, but for the first couple of times I listened to it, I, I hated this album and the the first time i listened to it i checked the runtime i was like 36 minutes long foo fighters album great seems perfect length hit, hit me with it dave hit me with this, this fire that you've been cooking up and sitting on for ages and it started with na na nas and i was like oh fuck really you know my song was that bad actually i think oh. it was a good opener the, mate, whenever an album starts with na na nas, I, I'm always concerned. And the track, skeptical. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's somewhat saved by Dave's verse vocals. Dave still sounds great, by the way. He, 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 yeah. he, he still yeah. sounds. He's a great vocalist. He still sounds very good. And the bridge riff that comes back as a solo is quite decent. But immediately, I was like, immediately, I was thinking, right, this whole disco rock thing. Like, oh, I don't think it's going to work for me. And then shame, shame starts. Sam, please, please tell me you think that song is terrible. I think Shame Shame is awful. Uh, yeah, I actually think it highlighted a few things. Number one, um, if you want to write a disco rock album, Dave Grohl can't sing it. Uh, it, it it's, because it, he, it sounded, it sounded like you were, you were trying to take a, a truck around the Grand National. It, it's just he wasn't. He's not built for that thing. He's not supposed mm. to be there. Um, like. The chorus of Shame Shame was nondescript. It feels like Dave Grohl's like sat in a room with his guitar and thought, instead of writing a riff, shall I just have no riff be the riff? No, yeah. that's the best riff of all, isn't it? The stabby <laughs> riff, the gap between the riff is the best riff. Uh, because every um, every song appears to have this like pause, or sort of like staccato style ACDC cross with Dave Berry type thing that he's trying to put together. And it, I, don't, I don't think it works quite well. But the the vocals, I wrote that it feels like the Foo Fighters are trying to traction into a diff, transition into a different stage of songwriting, but are not entirely built for it. The vocals, like the woes, the, the soft ones, you know, he goes, whoa. And I thought that was fine. But then he actually goes, and it's a soft song, part of the song. And he goes all like Dave Grohl, like he goes rough and harsh. And it's like, that doesn't work at all. What are you doing that for? It was like, yeah. ah, and the song was really soft. And it's like, well, all right, that's the only direction he can take it in as a vocalist. And then why put the song out? Rewrite it to suit your strengths. It felt like they were trying to square pegs and round holes, mate. It just, 
that song particularly was a, was a symbolic of that. Can I can I read to you a note that I wrote on Shame Shame? I put I yeah. find I find the drum and bass beat which sounds like something you'd hear while Tom creeps up behind Jay with a frying pan unbelievably monotonous. <laughs> Mate, uh, listen listen back to Shame Shame right, and listen to the drum and bass beat in the verse, and honestly, it sounds like. Like, like Tom would be creeping behind the corner while while Jerry's standing there doing the ironing. It is. It's like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. That, it's that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean. Uh, there's a that few moments terrible. here. There's a few moments here that I really, um, really sort of grimaced at. Can I be honest? Um, oh. I think the I think we found the worst Foo Fighter song of all time on this album. I think it's Chasing Birds. <laughs> It's pretty bad. It is pretty bad. What the fuck is that three minutes for? Um, even in the, in the context of the album as well, it's like it's completely to everything else. The procedural quality, like the worst, like sort of of all time. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Like, and also, also, it just repeats itself. Like, why, why did you have? Why did you repeat the second verse when the first verse is just, it's dull anyway? But you decided to do that again. It's like, you have a whole album. You had a lockdown. Write a fucking second verse. What the hell are you doing? Like, change the lyrics. And then on top of that, it's just dreadful. Um, I was holding on hope to a couple of these song titles as they were coming along, thinking that sounds like a rock song. That's going to be good. Mm. Uh, like, when Medicine to Midnight came on, I thought, oh, it's a title track. Great. But that's dull as fuck as well. Um, nice, nice vibes in the initial riff, but there's again, it starts off usually the song starts off kind of tempo and a bit sort of like dancing groovy, but then after that, it sort of goes back into like generic Foo Fighters pre chorus and chorus stuff. Nothing ever jumps out at you after that, and so many of them are just forgettable. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't hum to you holding poison right now. Oh, me neither. I, I, I listened to it 20 minutes ago, no clue. Um, uh, no son of mine that the one that released as a single a couple of weeks ago now in context of the rest of the album comes across like I've just heard fucking Stairway to Heaven for the first time because it, it is rocky and up-tempo yeah. it suits his voice and it's kind of bluesy and I'm like why don't you just have ten of these like uh, alright fine it would have sounded like every other Foo Fighters record if it's better than this and I appreciate again we always say this um, we always appreciate it when bands go out of their way to try and change the sound to develop the right. But I reserve the right to say when it's bad and when it's good. Absolutely. Um, and this is this is this isn't working. Um, waiting on a war. I like waiting on a war. I didn't like the repetition of the. Is it you making it this or making it that? You are making it this? You are making it that? I I, I felt I felt that it was like just rep- repetitive. There's a few songs here as well. There was um, which one was it? Um, it wasn't. It wasn't shame, shame, which is terrible. Oh. I, I agree. Um, it wasn't cloud spot, which which I actually thought was all right. Now it's in the, all right, the rest of the album, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's not too bad. Um, it was holding. It was holding poison. The mid tempo. It felt. It felt like a lot of these songs, like holding poison, was like ninety seconds too long. I felt the song should have ended at like the three minute mark, and then they went back into a verse and a chorus again. I'm like, I don't need this for like the third or fourth time. This album without at least a transition without at least a guitar solo or a change of tempo or something. Um, I don't know, man. Like, I don't think this is bad right now. 
um, if this if if you took the Foo Fighters label off and showed me this and told me that they were a rock band making their debut, I said, oh, it's a, you know, it's a bit promising. All right, got got you know, it's, it sounds okay. Um, but the, the 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 fact is, you put the Foo Fighters label on and you immediately expect this, as it should be, at the very least, a seven out of ten rock record. And it's it's just not. And I think we're a bit late in the day for Foo Fighters to try and be a sort of band that I don't think that they are capable of being. And it's um, it's not great. It's a bit dull. Um, and there's a lot of this that I, I will not listen to again. Um, but I don't think it's awful. I just think it's a bit, it's just really bland, Chris. It's just really bland, mate. Uh, that, that, that's all I can that's all I can sort of say about it, really, to conclude. I don't I don't think it's awful. I think it's bad. I think I'd give it a four out of ten if I was reviewing this. Um I do like writing on the wall. Never a bad thing to hear Dave Grohl accompanied by acoustic guitar, is he? And the no, tempo no, and the I tem- quite like the transition. I, yeah. I think that thing that helped it out. The tempo change in the final third was genuinely unexpected. And by this point, I'm like bored to tears as I well, so I'm begging, just please put some kind of tempo and, and force in this record. Um, yeah, and, and I think that I think waiting on the wall would actually go over really well live because of that. Unlike most of this album, and I spoke, and, and that kind of sums up my whole thoughts on Medicine at Midnight. Every now and then, you hear a riff from Dave or a drum beat from Taylor Hawkins, and you think, "All oh, right, here we go, yeah, Foo Fighters, come on, c- come on, do it then." But it's always like incredibly short lived. No, some of mine's yeah, decent. Yeah. The kind of Queens of the Stone Age, such them crooked vultures riff, vultures, them yeah. crooked vultures riff works. Uh, I don't think there's many better um, vocalists adding that kind of gnarl and grit to hard rock vultures than Dave Grodys. Um, I think the guitar style that's chucked in is nice. Uh, I think that's by Pat Smear that did that guitar solo. Um, Chasing Birds, mate, on with you. He's absolutely dreadful. Um, it's got this or- kind of the Beatles slash John Lennon solo voice, just dull as fuck. Um, I can so see what they were going for. Yeah, yeah. I can see what they were going for, that kind of like effervescent, deep ballad, sad tune. I, I do get it, but it's so boring. And then... You need a melody in that, mate. Oh, God. Oh, there's no melodies. It's, you, you, you could sing along to like nine, or like seven out of the nine tracks here. They're just, there's nothing there. The pomp and circumstance around "Love Dies Young," which is the last song on the album, that that kind of works. And I, I think they could close, they could they could close out a live set with with that at a stadium. You know, nice little lead lick on that yeah. song actually on "Love Dies Young." I thought that was nice. You can see the fireworks going off during the, when they hit the final crescendo. I get it. That you know, that's all right. A song that could close out a live set, but but I think I appreciate this album's endeavour. And like you said, me and you were always pushing for bands to do something new, but we reserve the right to say when it's not very good. And I think what this album does, this album makes me toy between how much I love Dave Grohl, but how bad this this album is. Like it, it makes me feel like I'm in some kind of metaphorical tug of war in terms of, I don't know which side I want to be talking for, how much I love Dave Grohl, or how much, man, this album sucks. And, and, I, and I really dislike it. I mean, seriously, the last three now Foo Fighters albums 
that I just don't understand. They just didn't need to exist. I don't get it. And okay, fair enough. Then, you know, bands aren't, bands very rarely go 10 years without releasing a record. But God, couldn't they have just took the best couple of songs from Concrete and Gold, took the best few songs from Menace at Midnight and took the best few songs from, I think the song was called Sound City or something like that and put them together and have it be an album over the show, over the space of 10 years. And that would have been so much oh, it better. It doesn't work like oh, that. No, though, it doesn't. Oh, no, I'm just saying as I'm looking into the wishing well. I know that's not how it works, but it's just looking back at these last three witch. albums. I want a trio of the last three Foo Fighters <laughs> albums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Instead of Do you saying oh, end we... world poverty. Yeah. No, I want shame, shame. Two songs off concrete and gold. <laughs> I'll fix everything. Anyway, uh the album is bad. It's pretty mean... stopped genocide. <laughs> the album's bad. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, good for them. It was number one. Awesome. You know what, mate? Last few weeks, You Me and Six, Bring Me The Horizon, Foo Fighters in at number one of the UK album chart. Great. Awesome. Uh, rock music at, at the uh, hitting the peak of the charts. Never a bad thing. Foo Fighters sticking in hearts and minds. Never a bad thing. Announce the stadium tour for 2022. I'll buy tickets. You'll play ever long. You'll play pretend. You'll play all my life. You'll play my hero. I'll be absolutely buzzing. And then when you play songs of the new album, I'll just talk to you for a bit about how terrible they sound. Much like we'll do some when we go and see Green Day, if and when that tour actually happens. I mean, it's the way. I I think that's it. I think Three Fighters just need to know who they are a little bit. And unfortunately, for the for these stretches, just don't don't work for them. But this isn't going to affect their legacy. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure they're still going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with fucking Eiffel 65 <laughs> in 15 years. Um, but that's that's just how the, that's just how the world is. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm a little bit sad that you know I, I have to say nasty things about something that Dave Grohl's been part of. And I really like Dave Grohl, but other than that, this is this isn't great at all. This isn't great. We're going to leave out the episode here, Sam. However. Mm-hmm. My interview with the Young Hearts comes up right now. So remember, uh, if you are still listening, thank you very much. And where whatever platform you're listening to us on, please give us a subscription or like the video on YouTube, etc. Follow us on Twitter at Noise Podcast. We sincerely, sincerely hope that we will be back with you next Tuesday with a one-off special reviewing the new album from Architects for those that wish to exist. At the very least, we will definitely be back in two weeks. Though. My interview with Craig and Stu from the Young Hearts comes up right now. We thank you all for listening. Give us a subscription, give us a like, and follow us on Twitter at Noise Podcast. We love you. Bye. So I'm now joined by Stu and Craig, bassist and vocalist of the Young Hearts. Lads, I can't thank you enough for your time, man. How are you? Not too bad, man. Thanks for having us. Man, you're welcome. Uh, I-, I was going to say this to you kind of off record, but I thought, you know what? Why not say it on the show? It was me that wrote up the review uh, for Noise. Uh, that I, I, oh, is that, it? That, yeah, it was me, that, and you may have seen it. Uh, man, I am so in love with the modern state. It's one of those records that came along at the perfect time in my life, and I've seen loads of people say the same thing, which must be like the best thing in the world for you to see this like influx of people. Like, I found this record at the right time. It's amazing. It speaks to me on so many levels. Hey, it's. Uh... The response so far has been incredible. It's been it's been so much better than we expected. And I think I think the way you said like it's come at the exact right point in your life is because 
I think the way it was written is is about that time that most of us, like everyone who's in those sort of late twenties, early thirties, everything, everyone's going through the same shit, and mm. I think that's why so many people are relating to it. Which was never, it was never really our intention. It was just kind of writing about what we was what we were experiencing. But it's it's so amazing that everyone has sort of connected with it so much. Well, you mentioned time in there, um. And that's, I think that's a really interesting concept of the whole record, like in the sense of the modern state was like a, a legitimate fight for you, like emotionally, mentally, practically to actually get out, pressed, released onto Spotify, into people's ears, ears, sorry, ears, into people's ears. If I asked you to pick one particular emotion out of relief or excitement that the album is actually out, how would you, which one would you pick, you say? Uh, I I would have to go with excitement to be honest. Like as much as a relief as it is to have out, like we are so proud of these songs, and yeah, we've waited a long time, but we're just so happy that now people are are hearing them because we've been we said we've had we they've been sat in the pipeline for so long for us. Mm. So and we've just been sat like itching for people to hear them. So it is I think the main thing is excitement for me anyway. Saw a really interesting picture you shared on Twitter a couple of days ago. It's like this side by side comparison of shows you played like ten years ago compared yeah. to now. Um, <laughs> man, that picture on the left. Were you playing like a school disco or something? I, I looked at that and I thought, what? Where are they even playing this? We um. So the one on the left was was that the one where we're all like in kind of like vests, looking a bit younger. Yeah, and like it looks like there's some kind of LED like yeah. Microsoft PowerPoint presentation so behind you. Me, me, Craig, and Aaron were mm. like in a band uh, before um, together, so we've been in like bands for a uh, long time together. Right. So that was like on tour. That was one of our first tours. Well, not one of our first ones, but one of the early experiences tours, and we were really young and we didn't care because there was no one there but we were just like yeah whatever we're on tour mm. this is fun and then um sharing it comparison with we um supported junior um on a wrestling like as a wrestling after show uh mark andrew's uh, band not sorry not tour yeah 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 um, that was a one-off show we did tour with junior but that was separate yeah so each year they do this like a big wrestling event mm. and junior we've always kept friends with for some reason they're just cool they're chill they're, like, they're easy there's no drama with them and they went you want to play it and we got there and it was just like yeah it was just like massive and we're like it is just a turning point seeing it like keep going on and that's that those are the shows you, you do this for do you know what i mean those those shows in particular it's just that's the reason why you're in a band well, I looked at those two pictures, and though drastically different, yes, they are. There's always you just get that element of you can tell that it was fun for you at both of those times. Would you say that like you've been able to retain that element of fun throughout the band's entire span, or do you feel like the difficulties of the industry has ever really taken its toll on you? I would say that we are very heart in your hand, heart in your sleeve kind of band, and we. We physically wouldn't be able to do it if it wasn't fun. Like mentally, because we're all best friends, we all share a lot of emotions between each other. Like there, there's quite a few hard times between tours and all that, you know, financially, whatever. Getting older, um, we crave it um, to the point of like we just sat in a band chat with each other and a laugh. Like can't wait till tour. All, all the bands are saying it. We do miss it, but it's just a general like release. 
go on tour as well. So yeah, it's hundred percent fun all the time. Even the even the hard times are fun when you're on tour and being in a band. I find that like quite fascinating. To be fair, for for a band that's been going at it for as long as you have. To, to be able to retain that element of fun, I'll be honest with you. I, I genuinely expected you to say then, oh, nah, mate, sometimes I really, <laughs> it's really difficult this life. Um, so I'm quite, really quite fascinated that you've, and um, quite amazed actually, you've been able to always consider this as, yes, this is difficult. We'd rather it be this way, but we still love doing this for XYZ reasons. Because not everyone is like that, man. It's, it's definitely harder and reflecting when you were 21 compared to when you're 31 because that's mine and craig's age now so when we were 21 we had no responsibilities i was still living with my dad so now i'm 31 got my own house and i'm so taking tours gigs taking time off work it's a little bit harder but if you if you've never done anything hard you know you never achieve anything if it was easy you wouldn't do it do do you feel like it's almost more rewarding now because of the responsibilities that you have to sacrifice at times to do this. Craig, what would you say on it? Um, I, I think it is more rewarding, but I think that's maybe that we have stepped up like a level from what we ha- were doing sort of a, a few years ago. Like, I think like the band for us is a second life. Like we have our work life and our home life and a lot of the time the band is a release from us or we like it's an escape from that kind of responsibility. So when we do get to go away on tour, no matter what the shows are like, like it does kind of feel like we're 21 again. Like we're sort of living the dream, even if like we, we're traveling God knows 300 miles and there's only like 20 people there. Like when three or four of them come up to you after the show and tell you how much they love it. Like, that you can't you can't sort of replace that feeling like it doesn't matter whether you're playing to 20 people or 300 people like it's I think it's more rewarding now because we're seeing a bit more of our sort of advancement from 10 years ago I spoke to the vocalist from Cold Years who are a band relatively similar to yourselves um and I kind of mentioned to him that to write songs as openly and as personal narrative driven as the young hearts do. Is that like the best form of personal therapy you can get your hands on? Because <clears throat> when I spoke to him about it, he was like, dude, if I didn't sing in this band, I'd need like probably like help <laughs> in the sense of like, it's the best way for me to get across the way I'm feeling about something's happening in my life. And for the young hearts and particularly the modern state, he takes such a personal narrative and that's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to the record because I relate to so much of it. Is it like the best form of therapy you could get your hands on without paying extortionate money? Uh, yeah, absolutely. To be honest, like um, Stu, Stu can back me up on this. I'm not uh, the most open person, like in, in sort of the general sort of in general life. Like I don't really talk about much that's going on other than I'll check out this new record, Stu. Like I won't just, bring like one of my mates up and be like, oh, I really need to chat. I've, I've had a bit of a tough week or this is going you, on. You often in your own little way, um, I find that sometimes when Craig actually does want to get into a bit of conversation, he will just open it up with, I'll check out this band or whatever. That'll be Craig's way of reaching out. To you right, and going, okay, that's interesting. Oh, check it. And then, then we'll get on to another issue. But like, yeah, Craig's way of reaching out normally is a lot of time music. So maybe I'm not actually a weird way of trying to connect with people. 
Yeah, I think you're probably right. But as I said, like for me, when I sit down and and write the lyrics, start writing lyrics to the songs, it is it is a kind of therapy. Like it will start out just like a kind of ramble in my sort of iPhone notes of like stuff, and then I'll kind of sort of tailor it to fit some kind of rhythm and sort of structure. But yeah, absolutely, I get what Ross has said from Cold Tears. Like it is it is a kind of therapy. Uh, Craig, how do you handle uh, like band not disputes, but in terms of there's a discussion about where a certain direction the band the band should go in? Do you find it difficult to open up in those instances as well? Or are you much more confident? I can see by the smile on your face that I'm assuming you're much more confident when it comes to uh, band matters. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I'm a bit of a a kind of in some respects a kind of dictator when it comes to like the sort of studio or or the actual sort of songs like sound of songs anything else in the band like i'm quite happy for um, the others to get on with it the sort of business side of it like that's not my uh, that's m- not my bag but um luckily we've got like Stuart who's who's great at all that stuff but like i said when it comes to when it comes to like the sonic picture i have such a a strong idea of like how i want things to sound and luckily i have like the three best people i could I could be in a band with because they totally get my sort of my moods and uh, my um, bluntness when it comes to certain things like that. And they sort of like work around me. I think they work well with me. From what I've read and researched, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, it, to me, it reads like the aftermath of the EP that came out in 2017. Honestly, I'm just thinking it seems like that would the aftermath of that was when events started unfolding that would lead to the mood in the camp changing um, and the kind of the fortunes of the band hitting something of a downturn. Um, can you just talk me through like the specific or major events that led to you questioning whether the Young Hearts was something that you wanted to continue on with? Yeah, um, so when we released or when we recorded the last EP, like building up to release, sort of 2016, I was I was working a job um, that I didn't necessarily hate, but it, it just had no future. Like mm. there was no way I could spend my life just doing that. And I was only doing it because it, get, it allowed me the time to sort of jump away on tour at the last minute or leave early to go and play a show. So I think, but then, so at that time we would have been about sort of 25, 26. And a lot of our, like we're, we're from quite a small town in Kent, like mm. right in the Southeast. Um, so we know, we know so many people like close by and you can, you see like everything that's going on in their lives, how they're settling down and having kids and getting mortgages. And here's me, Stu, Aaron and AJ, just like, still working the shit jobs and going away on tour to play shows to 10 people. And, uh, and I think that's just when you kind of think like, how much longer can I, can I carry on with this? Like, am I being, am I being ridiculous still trying to pursue this? Is this not something you do when you're 17, 18, 19, 20? And then you sort of like think, Oh, let's do a proper career. Like I didn't even, even like back in school I was always like oh yeah I just want to be in a band I want to be in a band I want to play shows I want to make records and write music and uh, it got to that point when I was in this job and I was just like how much longer can I do this how how much more time do I give it and I think that was when 
I, I just quit the job. Like I just handed in my notice. I was, I was, I was still living at my parents at the time. And I said to my parents that I'm really like just fed up with this job. I'm going to hand my notice in. Are you, are you cool to just let me sort of like maybe live rent free for a bit until I sort myself out? And they were totally cool. I'm ridiculously lucky in, in that respect. Like my family have always been so supportive. But that's, that's kind of what led to it. Like I had a few months in between jobs where I could just, I didn't have to worry about anything. And that was where the song Wild and Reckless was written about. So, and that just kind of, so when I found a new job that paid quite a bit more money and then, but it still gave me the time to do the band that's when we sort of continued pushing on with the writing. And I still kind of had in the back of my head, like, oh, I've got a better job now. Maybe I can sort of look into buying a house and settling down a bit and stuff like that. And yeah, so I think there was always that thought there that was like, how much longer can I chase this dream before? Like, because like, you think like your, your parents back in the day when they were the sort of our age back then, they had like, a house, mm, set yeah. jobs, maybe a yeah. kids. And, and like that kind of social expectation has changed so dramatically that you you feel the same way when you're sort of 30 as you, as you do when you're 20. Like you're still figuring stuff out. And that kind of just inspired the whole record. Stu, where were you? Uh, where was your mindset when Craig was having these thoughts about should we do this? I'm 26. Shouldn't I be earning 35,000 pound a year and having a mortgage by now? Where, where, where was your mindset at that point? So I think I kind of kind of echo the story a little bit, but in my own reflection. So um, I'm a self-employed barber. I work really hard at it. So I, every time I go on tour, I have to basically, I'm still, I lose money. So for me, it's always like, can I keep doing this kind of thing? Like it's quite hard work. Um, but, in that sense, um, like like Craig said earlier, it's not the most open guy, but you know when stuff's up. So we'd write these songs and then like you get to know the lyrics and that's almost like, you know stuff is up, but that's almost like we'd go to a band practice, we'd hear him sing it and then I'd go home and think about it and I'm like, that's almost like the first time you have the realisation, you're literally hearing it in the words in front of you and that's a strange feeling. Because right, yeah. you're doing something you love at the same time, but then you're getting hit in, hit in the face with a bit of a wall. Um, so I think going forwards, we kind of... Yeah, it was, it was almost like we took the pressure off and that helped in some ways. And we were just like, this album in some kind of ways, like earlier, you said, like, is it a, is it a celebration or is it relief? Like, at first, it kind of was would have been like a relief just to get out of the way with like oh that's kind of that chapter i'm glad i've done it but the um i think to take the pressure off and it's turned into excitement like it's just it's, it's, it's really hard just pinpointing emotion explain to her i feel yeah. like i'm rambling on no like, no please please man i'm, I'm fascinated it's yeah I, I, I do find it really hard to express there wasn't like a key moment but because we come from a small town, the expectation of what your parents done before you and what everyone else is down around you, you always like set these little things of why haven't I done this? Why am I not doing this? Mm. Why has someone done this compared to me? But like 
I think everyone's just a little bit lost in our generation because we're comparing it to a time of like my dad's generation. Like he's comparing that to his dad's generation. And those yeah. are two very different times. Like mm. our 30s compared to my dad's 30s are very, very different. Um, and especially stuff we're all going through at the moment, man. Yeah, I mean, of course. So, and like jumping into lockdown as well, I think it's just made everyone like, guys, fuck it, let's have fun. Do you know what I mean? Can't wait. Do you know what I mean? Like loads of people around us have like, I want to start music again. These all people quit music years ago because they were like starting families. A lot are going, I want to do that again. I've time of taking life for granted. And Craig says to me, like, we've said it so many times in the car, what would you rather be doing? Like playing in like Birmingham, like on a cold like night with no one you know, maybe not have a good turnout or maybe do, or sat in front of the TV watching Emmerdale. I'm like I take I take the gig in Birmingham every time because yeah. I, I don't I don't want to rut and just do nothing with my life. I just feel like it's a bit of a release. I've kind of rambled away. No, from no, point, man. But... No, seriously, it's, um, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, Craig, were you like? Did you sit with the band and say, lads, I don't know whether I'm going to want to do this much longer. I don't know whether I can. And was there like a rallying cry, like Craig, don't be stupid, let's do this because it's still fun. Uh, or was 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 anyone else echoing your sentiments? Was there like a real band discussion of okay, Craig's not in the right space for this? Is anyone? I don't think. Do you, do you, I don't think we. I don't know if we had like a proper full band discussion. I remember having a specific converse, conversation with Aaron in the car on the way home from a practice, and he he had kind of initiated it because he was he's he's like a couple of years older than us. He's married. And he's sort of in, he's very, he was, he was kind of like looking to settle down properly and he wasn't sure. And I said to him, it must've been when we were writing the album. Cause I remember saying to him on this way home before I dropped him off, I was like, to be honest, mate, like, I agree with you. I, I think this album might be the last thing we do because I'm not sure how much longer I can do it. I, I'm not sure how much longer I can take, keep taking the setbacks of being in a sort of low level band, like, doing the sort of small tours and stuff like it's not paying off as much as we'd have hoped. So I definitely remember having that conversation with Aaron a hundred percent, like a proper conversation where we both kind of echoed the same, same feelings. And I think I'm pretty sure I, I did speak to Stu about it. Maybe not as like hands down, laid it down because I knew, I knew Stu was a little bit more one foot in than one foot out. Um, I don't think I'd have laid, laid it down like as, as in, this is it. This is the last thing. But uh, I do, I, I do remember having those sorts of conversations. Yeah, and it was. It's always you and me, like, um, like the other guys will know what I'm saying by this. We're me and Craig are like the driving force behind the band. So mm. me and Craig are always kind of sharing the um ups and the downs in the conversations. Anyway, so we kind of almost like microly like venting our frustration onto each other. Anyway, so we never have that. Whereas I don't think Craig um, will ever like get hold of Aaron and um, say about his frustration. So like them having this big conversation with each other is a bit of a realization. And I think it's probably good for Craig actually like um, like speak to other members of the band rather than just hearing my ideas all the time because we're it's almost to that thing like I'll keep doing it as long as you keep doing it, but that isn't always yeah. the case, you know. Like 
I'll keep going if you keep going. Like if Craig said oh, I'm quitting the band, I wouldn't try and find another singer. Like, do you know what I mean? Like right. it's there's um yeah, we've never had that initial conversation, but it's very easy to know what's going on with each other. I'm not gonna harbour over the past for much longer when the present is so good for the band, but was it was there a point where there was like this kind of underlying sense that maybe not everyone had their like full, no pun intended, heart in the band when there's this idea of maybe not all of us want to carry this on much longer. And was that was there like a, a, an underlying level of friction there when someone I can imagine, you know, you're in a band, it's difficult enough being a local band at, as you were at that point, let alone maybe some members can't see a massive future in this. Was there any kind of underlying friction there that needed to be sorted or ironed out? I don't think I don't think there was any friction, no, to be honest. I think it was it was more kind of like Stu said before, like it did kind of relieve a bit of pressure. And maybe that got us back to enjoying it a bit more a bit more because we knew like, oh, maybe there was an end in sight and that like the album has always been a dream of all of ours. So we were kind of work, working towards that kind of goal and not really thinking about anything afterwards. Like we just wanted to make a really great album. And whether that sort of lasted or didn't, like, it didn't matter. Like, we just wanted to write some good songs. And I think we're all very good friends. We've been friends for a long time. So we don't really have friction about anything, to, to be honest. Like, uh, I think we're all, we just we just get on, which helps yeah, massively. We're all very typical, just very pally, very, yeah, all of our friends are revolved around music. Like, luckily, it's all the same click, all the same vibes. So everyone kind of gets it in our friend circle. So um, there's obviously frustrations, but I think that's just normal. You get four people in a room with each other all the time. There's always frustrations because people want to do one thing one night. But, yeah, we click pretty well. We're a pretty solid unit. Moving forward uh, to the modern state, because I love the record so much and it's criminal that we haven't actually spoken about it when we're 20 minutes into an interview yet. Um, I wrote in my review for Noise that you get this real feeling of freedom and liberation from the modern state. And there's a lyric on uh, Still Wonder, um, if I remember it correctly. I see the light behind closed doors, but I could never find the strength to ask myself what you're waiting for, uh, which I think fits into this idea of freedom and liberation really well. Was the mentality when you were writing this record simply like, fuck it, we've got nothing to lose by putting this record out there? Absolutely. That, that is exactly what it was like, because... Because we were kind of like, oh, if, if this is if this is it, then let's make it a good one. Like, no, there might be no one listening to it, but we want to write something that we love, and that was that was our sole intention was to write something that we were proud of. Like, we didn't have to think about anything else. So it was, so there was no pressure on anything on us. All we wanted to do was write a great record, and we took our time with it. And I think like that just helps massively you're not you're not sort of pushing to get it out by any specific time so you can go over and over and over things until you're like 100 percent with them but yeah it's it was i think yeah said so with with not knowing what would happen like that just made it so much easier to write were you a part of Savvy Management before signing to Year of the Rap Records? And, and the reason why I'm asking that is I'm curious how important it was for you to sign with someone who you already had a large level of trust in, because I can only imagine the last thing a band needs 
in the position you had been in, in the fight you had been in, was then a dodgy label exec that was going to run you through the mill. So were you already signed to Saudi management before signing to Year of the Rat Records? Sure, I'll let you um, take this one. So, um, we literally just finished our second EP. Um, and I was up really late. It was about half 11 at night. And so, I was following James anyway and Saviour on mm. his page. And he put up this. I'm after a couple of bands. People send me stuff. I think James actually got back weirdly like that night, um, which we didn't expect. He must have been up late or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> And um, it was like, yeah, send me, a, send me a new EP, what you got going on. And yeah, basically went from there. So we signed with him just before the release of the second EP. So there right. was literally, James um, was like, what's your plans for it? Like, we're going to do what we've done with the last one. He was like, what'd you do with the last one? Spit it out. Um, he was like, right, no, that's not going to be happening. So James basically <laughs> took the disorganisation of the young hearts, a lot of passion in the young hearts, but major disorganisation. And um, I wouldn't ever call myself a manager. Basically, I was doing everything before. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I was just guessing it and winging it. So James took over the role of what I was doing, but obviously that's James' job. He is, um, he's very good in the industry. He knows exactly what he's doing. So he just put us on the, the path which young hearts needed to be on. And, you saying about having that pressure of going onto a label. We won't mention the label because it's unprofessional. We were signed with another label actually mm. last year right. and they kind of ghosted us. They were taking right. months to reply to. Um, it was a fairly well-known-ish international label in the States and it's kind of, it was, the communication wasn't there. We were two months between emails to send the email, you get like an email back two months later. We're trying to release right. an album here mm. like our absolute like pride and joy and we didn't know what's happening so um james made things happen and we got out of that contract james just turned around and went how do you feel like being the first signing of our band of my label and it just made sense straight away because we know how passionate james is so he's going to put that passion into his own label it's a win-win for everyone in that situation because yeah. we had no trust issues and james wasn't going to put a wool over our eyes he just said look boys this is a deal um there's no like there's there's no curtains in front of you i just want to do the best by my label and by you and we just went with it as we've kind of discussed you're a band that writes like obviously from personal experience as i've mentioned ad nauseum that's part of why i've connected with the band so well uh, but does that put you in a difficult position of like you can only really write if you've got a story to tell does it limit you at all? Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I thought it um, was. It is. It. I think I take the songwriting so seriously and I won't write anything if I haven't got something to say. Mm. So, but I think, I think that's a good thing. Like, like in our old bands, like we'd, we'd write songs just for the sake of writing songs. And most of it would be a load of rubbish. Like the lyrics weren't thought out. A lot of it was rushed and pieced together because at the time, like, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think we, we thought of, it sounds stupid, but like, we didn't think of the songs as important. Like it was all about the experience. Oh, let's go and play live. Let's mm. go mental and just have a good time. And then like when you get older, you, and 
the, the sort of the bands that you start to listen to, you kind of realise like, well, really like the lyrics and the words and what this song is trying to say is like is more important than anything. And that kind of really sort of took took a hold of me when it came to songwriting. So I said, I won't, I I can't write a song if I haven't got something to say. Um, but that was, but I think that's it helps the modern state so much because I had a lot to say. So the songs did come together quite quickly. Um, but yes, it's yeah. I think you definitely it definitely helps to have something that you want people to hear to be able to write a song. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for everyone, but that's just my my personal opinion. I think uh, last time with the last band, you're almost like we were a cookie cutter band. We'd um we go that needs that that needs that kind of melody that needs that bang. Let's put it together a song. Whereas this one, we're like it needs to be personal. It needs to be a story to be told. It doesn't have to be, but that's the way we feel as people what we want to present ourselves. We don't want to fake, we don't want to bullshit. We don't want to put out a repetitive song with catchy lyrics. If we're not feeling it, cause we'd never want to play that live. So these songs playing live, we honestly do feel what we're saying and we relate with it. And I think a lot of people do relate with what we're trying to say. If that makes any sense. It makes complete sense, man. Um, just as I, we start kind of winding up here, um, I, I feel like, the uh, easy life is another track that sums up the record perfectly. Um, you know, it's been a this narrative of it is being able to give this fight for something that you love. Uh, in the sense that maybe the easy option for yourselves would have been to quit when times got hard, as as we've already discussed. Maybe that would have been just the easy thing to do, um, and just go and just double down on a nine to five career job. Uh, but you fought through, and here we are. And uh, so, you know, when I put that to you, if we go back right to the start of the interview. And we're talking about that photo of you 10 years ago, uh, playing to no one. And I offered you this outcome. Would you both snap my hands off in that moment? Yeah. Yeah, I figured as much. Stu? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's, um, it's, it's like, yeah, uh, there's, there's a lyric of one of ours, would you do it all again, you know? Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> we'd, we'd always do it all again. I have got here uh, a quick fire range which I've put um, bands through the paces on. Uh, the last band to do it was uh, also on Saudi Management Monasteries. Um, so what what it is? Uh, Twenty questions uh, as quickly as you could possibly answer them. Uh, so obviously only one of you can do it. So I will ask lads, who do you think is better under pressure out of the two of you? Oh, definitely Craig. <laughs> oh, you joking. Craig, you're Craig, you got, you got there too quick, mate. You got there too quick. <laughs> right, mate. So what we're going to do, I'm going to get my timer going. And at the moment, my mom leads uh, the league table here. Somehow she answered these 20 questions in like one minute and 20 seconds, which is pretty incredible. I don't know how she managed it. Um, so yeah, at the minute, my mom leads, mate. Uh, and then we'll see how well you can do here, Craig. Okay, so when you're ready, mate, I'm going to start. Oh, God. Okay. Let's go. Batman or Superman? Batman. Mayo or ketchup? Mayo. Favourite type of takeaway? Pizza. Favourite The Young Heart song? Don't tell us all. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars. Best gig you've ever been to? Uh, the Gaslight Anthem at the uh, the Coco at awesome. 2012. Awesome. Uh, band member that's most fun to be around in the studio? Uh, Aaron Jeans or shorts? Jeans Favourite time of the day? Uh, early morning 
Worst personal habit? Uh, I get everyone. Angry driver. <laughs> hey, your favourite album of all time? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, that's impossible. Um, the Menzing is on the impossible path. Amazing. Uh, best gig you've ever played? Uh, the Dome, Tuffman Park with Junior. Dogs or cats? Dogs, hands down. Marvel or DC? Uh, Marvel. Uh, one destination you wish you could travel to? Uh, America. Uh, hardest the young heart song to write? Oh, wow. Um, swim. Favourite movie? Oh my god! <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. I didn't. I'm not doing this on purpose. This is, this is really hard. <laughs> favorite movie? Um, Home Alone. Uh, favorite TV show? I'm sorry. Uh, the US Office. A wicked choice. Uh, your favorite actor? Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. And finally, a uh, best piece of advice you ever you could ever give someone? Don't eat yellow snow. That is a good piece of advice, mate, I've got to say. <laughs> uh, mate, clocked in just shy of two minutes, but I tell you what, mate, I did I did throw some ones in there that have been harder than ones I've thrown to others, so you should still be proud of that effort, Craig. Okay, that cool. was so good regardless, cool. mate. <laughs> um, gents, uh, I am a cheap bastard, and I the Zoom limit for when you've got three participants is 40 minutes, so we're just reaching up to that now. So I'm going to uh, thank you uh, massively for your time. As you would have seen from my uh, review on Noise, uh, modern state is wicked. I love it so much. Um, and I really appreciate you taking this precious time of your Friday evening to speak to me. Um, thank you again for your time, man. Uh, this is wicked. No, thanks so much for having us, man. It's been yeah. an absolute pleasure. Take care, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks, Cheers. man. Bye.